I'm Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest this week is Walkley Award-winning investigative journalist Kate McClymont. Kate McClymont, thank you so much for joining us on Minimal today. My pleasure, Jim. It's uh, it's such an honour to talk to you and, um, you know, you've got such a storied career um, and it's an amazing career, really. Seven Walkleys, if I'm not mistaken, and, you know, countless eight, eight Walkleys. <laughs> I said that. I'm so sorry. Straight away stuffed up. Um, you know, such a, such a, a streak of, of successes. Can you tell me, it, well, first off, first off, Barry Cassidy described you and the work that you do as exhausting, meticulous, and a scary way to make money. Oh, look, I, I would only agree with some of that. Um, I just think it is the best job you could possibly have. I, I just, you know, cannot think enough times how lucky I was. One, to not finish my law degree. <laughs> hmm. And um, I just think every day brings you something different. You know, it can be really stressful. It can be exhausting. But it is such a an honour in some ways to be able to have the, the time and to be paid for, you know, shining a, a light on those, in those dark amazing. little corners. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, you said that you didn't complete your law degree when when you started. You know, out of your your, your teenage years and progressed into a, into a professional life, you you ended up majoring in English literature. I just want to ask why didn't you? Dis- why wasn't uh, becoming a solicitor something that that piqued your interest? Because you know, in many ways, your career is almost parallel in terms of the degree of investigation that goes into what what you're discovering on a daily on, on a on a on a long term basis. Look, I think as you would know, Jim, and you know certainly your listeners would know, you know, life just takes you in unexpected directions. For example, I I did an honours year in English literature, and I just thought to myself, look, I'll just have a break, and I got a job in a publishing company because I thought that was the the kind of career that I wanted to have. You know, something to do with literature. And I found that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And strangely enough, it was just chatting to somebody at a party who said, I've just got a cadetship at the Sydney Morning Herald. It's just, you know, like that serendipitous mm-hmm. moment in your life of um, just a, a casual chat to somebody. So um, obviously the cadet intake had already happened for that year. But the next year, I, you know, I rang up and I said, you know, what do you do? Mm. You know, how do you go about it, etc. And I'd also um, was volunteering at um, a radio station. I did some work experience, you know, for nothing mm. at um, the Manly Daily. And I decided, look, that actually was something that I did really enjoy. Mm. And luckily enough, I did get a cadetship. But you know, during the course of, of cadetships, um, oh my goodness, some of the things that you had to do. We used to always <laughs> laugh about whose turn it was as a cadet to do the shipping news. Yeah. You actually had to do what time boats were arriving. Right, yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> there are so many parts that are not glamorous. <laughs> but and my, in fact, my first, my first assignment was onto the style section. Yeah. I had to literally write about, Cushions and pillows and home decorations. 
That's and you stuck. You still stayed on. I mean, what was when, when you know that that's such a you know I've had conversations like that recently in my life where a light bulb does go off and, and you feel a sense of direction. Why was that particularly serendipitous to you? It, did you feel oh yes I can relate to that because I have a hero in that regard in the form of some person or other who was a journalist who did inspire you, or was it no. something else? No, no, no. That that's the whole thing. It's I think. You know, I, I really envy people who have known right from the outset what it is that they want to do with their lives. Mm. And, you know, I remember my parents saying, well, um, you know, you've always got to be able to earn your own money. So because you've got the marks, you have to do medicine or you have to do law. Mm. And you look back and you think, how silly. But I just sort of went along with that thinking well they're the two things that um, you know that you do mm-hmm. and I just think this happens to a lot of people you know you try something and you realize that actually isn't what I want to do um, I don't know how you find the law whether you still love it you know and there's still aspects mm. I love I love it but do you uh, well I'm, I'm at the very beginning of my law uh, journey at the moment um, and to be honest, uh, I'm still a student. <laughs> I'm still a student. I'm still in the student mode. And I, I get a rush and a euphoria when marks come in and they're favourable. And that, <laughs> that is, the, is the impetus. But, you know, to, to, if we're, you know, to be quite honest, I had one of those conversations that you had. I was at a wake and my cousin said to me, you'd be a good lawyer. This was about three years ago, four years ago, and it was a light bulb moment. It, it honestly was. I just had – there was no inclination. I didn't think I was smart enough. I it, it, And – and here we are three years later. So I've got one more year to go. And yes, life is funny like that, honestly. I, I agree with you on that se- in that statement, absolutely. I know, it, it's funny like that. And look, the, the same twists and turns happens, you know, even within your career. I can remember once um, um, I spent six weeks in um, federal parliament just filling in for somebody over the holidays. Mm. And I just found that, ghastly. <laughs> I just remember, and I just on one occasion, um, you know, going out to dinner, I was very, very junior with, um, you know, some political advisors, mm. etc. And one of them was so rude to me. Mm. And I remember saying to them, um, I'm sorry, like, I don't know all the answers, but I just don't think that you should be speaking to somebody like that. And he rang up the next day and actually apologise. Oh, okay, that's awesome. But it, it, it just gave me that feeling too of Canberra was something, I really do think it is a bubble. Oh. Um, no, just in that um, everyone there lives, breathes what is happening in Canberra. Yeah. And when you're outside of that bubble, you, you think, oh, there are so many, there's state politics, as you would know. Mm. There are so many other things happening in life. Yeah. But it's all, um, and I can just remember that, you know, journalists would, you know, get the papers open in the morning to see what they'd missed, what so-and-so had reported. What, and I just thought, oh, my goodness, this yeah. is so No, I, I get you. I, I get you. And, you know, in, in all honesty, my uh, foray into politics as, as a, you know, as a paid profession was, you know, as a, as a, as a guest always because um, – I was a videographer by trade and I managed to get work uh, making videos for politicians. So I never lived in Canberra. I only travelled down there when as needed and, 
and and worked primarily in state and federal politics. But uh, it was never. It was. It was all. It, it was. It was as if it was an. Oh, I've ended up here. You know, it wasn't a. It wasn't something that I pursued. Mm. And then by virtue of the work, I've gotten to know people who are very driven. You know, back to your last question. Uh, you know, driven and focused, and and just to see <laughs> to see their <laughs> dreams just destroyed has made me go. This is not. This is you know because you 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 wonder you, you you mix with these circles and you go oh, okay well is this is this for me maybe and then you just you just see what's involved in it and it's just not you know yeah exactly one of the famous stories of your journey was that you know there are a thousand there are at least over a thousand cadets uh, uh, potential cadets applying for a cadetship at the Sydney Morning Herald at the time that you did what got you through the door was that you in those days set up a discussional busking booth in King's Cross where you charged passers-by to argue with them and they paid and they sat down and they argued with you. Can you elaborate oh, on that idea? Don't, oh, don't forget, it was actually um, questions answered 40 cents, right. arguments 50 cents and verbal abuse a dollar. <laughs> so they, were, they were my three categories. How did you come up and with this idea? Look, Jim, I can't sing, I can't dance, I have no uh, no skills, but I can talk. That's about the only thing I can do. And I just I just did it for fun. Mm. And I used to make about $17 an hour, which in those days, we're talking about back in the late 70s, early 80s, that was an absolute sure. fortune. Yeah. So, and you only had to do it, um, you know, you'd go up, um, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night when you felt like it. And people walking along in King's Cross in those days, they were just always looking for something to happen. So, you know, people would stand around and, and laugh and listen and, you know, give you money to, you know, argue with. It was wow. it was just good fun. But, like, how do you come up with an idea like that? I mean, what's what, what, it's such a genius way to have a <laughs> night out but also make a bit of bob on the side. I mean, where does that come from? Oh, look, how would you know? Yes, yeah, sure. I, I, I seriously, <laughs> I amazing. seriously do not know. And it was so honestly, it was so amateur. As in, my sign was just a torn off piece <laughs> of bed sheet, which I had written in paint. You know, questions answered, and it was on two poles, so I could roll it up. Um, I had a fold up chair and a little fold up table. My customers sat on a milk crate. <laughs> and I just think back and I think, oh dear. But it was all, all things that I could just carry. And sometimes I'd get friends to come along when I first started doing it just to make sure yeah, that there was someone there. Well, yeah, that there was someone there that it was, you know, it was safe. And, but it was absolutely fine. Well, I mean, look. You, as you say, you know the, the key really is a good com- to be a good conversationalist, and I guess you, you, you're refining your skills in, in that in that element as well. But you know, you've said in prior interviews that the key to being a successful investigative journalist, journalist is to keep people on the phone. Um, how, how you know how can that be accomplished if those you're speaking to are wary of potentially adding to the destruction potential destruction of their reputation? perhaps the reputation of a colleague, what's the key? Look, it's it's hard to say, and it's the thing that I think I hate most about my job. You have to ring up people, you know, often with what's going to be very bad news for them and say, look, mm. um, you know, it's Kate McClymont here, and often you can hear, <laughs> you know, the last thing you want to hear, it's Kate McClymont here. I've just got a few... Um, questions for you and look sometimes um, you know people are 
angry mm. or they're, you know, they're afraid. But it's just important to say, look, it is only fair that I give you the opportunity to tell me, you know, what do you think's going on? What do you think's happening? And I think it doesn't matter who it is that you're speaking to. You do owe them um, respect. You do. I always find that you're much better off, you know, dealing with people, hopefully in a, a calm and considered manner. Um, you get better results that way. Look, it doesn't always, you know, it doesn't always pan out every mm. now and then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone gives you, um, you know, a little bit of a gobful, and you just have to cop it, really. Sure, sure. Um, would I be right in saying that the drive for you in in all the 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 stories that you've written, the investigations you've been involved in, the investigations that you that you're currently involved in, is it is it the pursuit of justice? Look, it's both. It's the um, it's the pursuit of justice when you know something um, has gone wrong. But in some cases, it's like you are um, a mystery writer or a, um, a very, you know, plotting detective. Mm. And you also want to find the answers to satisfy your own curiosity. You know, sometimes you'll see, um, you know, a, a money trail that you just, it just does not make sense. Or there's a, a caveat placed on a house and you think, why has that person got an interest in that person's house? Mm. So sometimes it's just pure uh, curiosity. You just want to know why. But in other cases, like certainly um, with the Eddie Obeid case, the, the um, former Labor politician who's now in jail, mm. like he just incensed me in that I started writing about him in 1999. And in that case... Um, a member of the public rang up and said, um, look, um, we're just, um, you know, businessmen from, I think they were from Balgala. And these two um, obeyed sons came to us and said, um, hey, listen, um, we want to do a deal with you. You've got the flagpole contract for the city of Sydney. Um, We're going to offer you, uh, we're going to swap. You give us that one and we'll get you the Olympic flagpole contract flag pole contract for the next year. And these people said, who did you say you were? And they said, oh, our dad is Eddie Obeid. And the two people said, well, we've never heard of Eddie Obeid. Mm, mm. And they rang me up and I'd never heard of Eddie Obeid. Mm. And so from that initial story, wow. like that, that was just, um, and the more I looked, the more I realised he was at the centre of just massive corruption, but um, it just didn't matter what you wrote. Nothing ever seemed to land a blow on them until the Independent Commission Against Corruption did um, what I have to say was a really fantastic investigation Mm. into Eddie Obeid and his family and Ian MacDonald, the former mining minister. Mm. Well, how did you know to look further into that? It's such a, like, almost an innocuous little nothing complaint almost, how did you know to sort of dig deeper on that? Or do, do, is that your process? Well, look, the funny thing is is that, um, you know, when you do a story, people read it mm-hmm. and they say, look, you might be interested to know this or to know that. So often um, you might write 
half of the story. You know that there's more there and then people come out of the woodwork and they help you. So, so it's and, almost you know, as if you're, you write a story and send it out as bait. Yes, exactly, right. mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and it's interesting how much um, the advent of the internet has changed how we report. For instance, you know, now you can put on the bottom of the story if you have any more information, here is my email. And that has proved over the years just to be so helpful um, in getting more information you know, about a story. But also, you have a, a gut instinct for things. Like, for instance, um, when I mentioned to you earlier about that flagpole contract, mm. I followed that flagpole contract for years. And guess what? So... The, the people at Balgala, they had the contract. Then there's another tender. The obeds come last in the tender process, but guess who gets the tender? <laughs> they do. Right. So, yeah. you know, it, it goes to court. And then Moses Obed, Eddie Obed's son, who's now in Cooma Jail with him, um, he then gets, um, you know, prosecuted by the City of Sydney Council because guess what? He is secretly selling the polls for which the council owned the intellectual property. He's secretly selling them offshore and he gets prosecuted. He gets sued for, I think the damages are $12 million. And rather than pay the money, he puts the company into receivership and says, I've got no money. So I went along to that court case. Mm. And interestingly enough, it was that court case in some ways that was the beginning of the end for the OB mm. because in court, Moses had to choose which lie. Um, you know, I've got no money, but hold on. The city of Sydney has got a forensic accountant to go to the banks and find out that you've got, um, you know, you've got a house in Vaucluse, you've got all this, this stuff coming in. Mm. And he stands up and starts telling about all the trusts. <laughs> oh, yes, we've got secret cafes. Yes, we've got all this they end up going to jail for the secret cafe. Right. And so I'm just in court. I just happen to be there. Oh, okay. I know, but it's just, it's just you can be in the right place mm-hmm. at the right time and you know what you're looking for. I guess for. they didn't realise how tenacious you would be, that you wouldn't just, you know, write something and forget about it and move on to the next thing. You would stick with this. I mean, you know, your battles with the Obeds are legendary. You wrote the book on, yeah. on Eddie and, and he sued you a bunch of times, I imagine. Uh, definitely. Uh, sorry, uh, he, he sued you, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Successfully. Oh, is yeah. that right, right, right. And then was that yeah, so uh, it, overturned? Is that right? No? No, 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 no. Um, that was back in 2006. And he sued for suggesting that he was corrupt. Was that in the book and or just through your articles? No, that was through an incidental inquiry. It was into the um, the Bulldogs salary cap oh. uh, affair. Okay, which is and another another a, big story that you expect. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. Right. As a sideline, in order to get a, a stadium and a council chambers uh, built for the, the Bulldogs Rugby League Club, the... Um, the government owned a key piece of land and Eddie Obed was trying to broker a deal where we will give you, we as in the government, we'll give you that piece of land if you pay a million dollars to me. Mm. Um, And it wasn't for him personally. It was to channel money 
into the coffers of the party. And I think what a lot of people don't understand about people like Eddie Obeid, who never rose to great prominence in the party. I think he was the, the fisheries minister. Yeah. But what happens, as you would know only too well, Jim, those people who can raise money in oh, the party. Yeah. Mm. yeah, exactly. It's mm. the people who can bring money in. That gives them a seat at the table. Mm. And, you know, the amount of people that were threatened with having, um, you know, funding withheld for their campaigns if they didn't, you know, take a seat at, at Eddie's table. Mm. And it's it's those backroom deals that um, – I always found really interesting and inexplicable often to me. Yeah, well, well it's it's fascinating, really. I mean, like, it, it really is um, cloak and dagger stuff, really, and you, you were at the forefront of it. Do you, uh, based on your work, you know, with uh, um, looking into the OB situation, um, the Canterbury Bulldogs expose, was that a byproduct of your uh, investigations into OB? Not really. It was... Um, and no, it was a, a different investigation, and Eddie was a byproduct. And I, I think one of the things that astounds me is that over all the years that I have been a journalist, the same people pop up in mm. different aspects of different stories. Wow. And that never ceases to amaze me. You think, oh my good, not him again, not him. I have a vague feeling that I wrote about him in X number of years and yep, sure enough. Wow. And and they, they sort of flow in and out of each other's lives. And I'm talking about two, the same group of lawyers, accountants, mm. those that basically aid and abet, um, you know, corrupt enterprises. It's almost like nefarious actions attract the nefarious to their yes. services. Mm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, it's exactly. Really, it's really interesting. I mean, so based on based on your work, you know, the the, the, the famous Obed work, do d- does it make you cynical of politics? And by that time, I mean, do you feel that history repeats itself and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Look, yes, in a, in a way, but then again, in a way, no. Because I think rather than um, it being politics, I just think it's it's human nature, and the same patterns are repeated in 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 sport, in business, in in companies. It's that desire to claw your way to the top, mm-hmm. and you know, in amongst that, there's also the you know the really good people who, you know, work hard and do the right thing, you know, who sometimes get trampled on by the, the sociopaths mm. in their profession. But there are good but people, is that right? Of <laughs> course there are good okay, people. Good. And it's sort of and it's not as though, you know, everyone goes into politics because they're evil. Yeah. It's just not like that. Um, and I, I sort of feel that um, you know, politicians, probably like journalists, you know, we get a bad rap in our professions yeah. for, you know, some of the bad practices um, amongst us. But that doesn't mean that everyone is like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I know uh, firsthand exactly what, what you mean by that. Um, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, your work uh, doesn't come without its dangers. Um, and you have been the subject of... Um, numerous death threats, I'm sorry to say. Um, how 
I mean, that how do you continue working when that ha- when that happens? I mean, I can't imagine anything worse. I must say it's easier now that my children uh, are grown up. That was the thing that always worried me was that something would happen to them. But you have to say in your mind that um, I don't think people really want to kill you because it would bring a whole lot of unwanted attention, you know, raining down on their their practices or their business activities. I just think they want you to stop what you're doing. That's Mm -hmm. their their prime motive. And, you know, if you if you look at it like that, you just think it's the work of a bully. Mm. And you just can't let bullies get away with it. Once they get away with it, they've won. So and I I make it a practice that if someone threatens me or if they, they do something, I put it in the story. Clever insurance policy, I think. You know, like just well, I mean, yeah. I'm not suggesting anything either by that statement. I'm just saying in future, it's good future practice, it sounds like. Yes, it, it's, uh, it is <laughs> insurance policy. <laughs> I know, but I think, um, I just think it's good to do that. And I remember another occasion, there was um, the um, son of quite a well-known um, crime figure. Was this and- the George Freeman? No, this is a different one. Okay. This was um, <laughs> so <laughs> different one. But out, I know, but outside of court, um, I said to our photographer, look, they, they're tied up in some unpleasant stuff, so get a photo of him, but don't bother getting a close-up. Mm. Anyway, so I go away and get a coffee, and I come back, and I find my photographer is in a shaking mess. Mm. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, I, I did go up and get a, a photograph, and he came up to me and said, you publish that photograph, I will track you down and I will get you. And my photographer rather stupidly said, but don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger. And he said, but I will shoot you. Anyway, so when he relayed this to me, I was so angry and I marched over and said, how dare you threaten my photographer? How dare you? And he just looked at me and he said, listen, you ugly old you know, you stinking <laughs> ugly old dad. Oh, my God. And I thought, what? Anyway, so the next day I put that, I put the threat. I didn't put the uh, our photographer's byline. I took that out. Yeah. But I just I just put in what he did. Yeah. And I just think, I'm just going to show you up to yeah. be the cowardly bully that you actually are. Yeah. I think okay. it's fair enough. I mean, are you, would you consider yourself battle-hardened in, in that, you know, I mean, I, I does it get easier to be threatened or is it always hard? Yeah, look, it does. No, it's, look, it depends, it depends on the uh, depends on I mean, who's threatened. Because, you know, you, you, you covered famously the McGurk murder, um, the coverage around that, and uh, that, the, people were getting murdered. People were getting killed. I know, and, and I did actually get a death threat um, put in my mailbox at my home oh my God. about three days after he was murdered. Um saying that you'll be next. Oh, shit. And look, I know that, look, and in that case, you do think, oh, right, okay, that is um, someone is dead. Mm, yes. <laughs> but, yes. Look, what, but what are you, but, rea- you know, in reality, what are you going to do? Not do your job? Mm-hmm. Like, well, I don't know. This is interesting. What do you do, Kate McClymon? No, you do your job, you know, and you do feel that um, – if you feel that you owe it to your readers 
to, you know, that that thing without fear or favor is something that I really do take seriously. Mm. Like you can't show weakness, even if you feel it. And I'm not saying that I, you know, I don't um, worry or I don't, um, you know, watch my back. You know, I do get anxious. But it doesn't mean that um, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. But, you know, having said that, far worse than people threatening you are the legal threats. Mm-hmm. because they're the ones that, you know, they tie you up in courts for months, like the work that goes into defending legal actions. And look, at the moment, I'm just watching the um, the Ben Robert Smith defamation yes. case, mm-hmm. which has embroiled, um, you know, my colleague Nick McKenzie and my former colleague at Four Corners, Chris Masters. Mm-hmm. And I just think, oh, this is just, oh. Like yeah. the amount of work, like that story would have taken a couple of weeks to prepare mm. and then it's now a couple of years, years. to defend. Absolutely. And look, Chris, Chris Masters, um, in his seminal program for Four Corners, The Moonlight State, mm. about um, corruption in the Queensland police, for the next decade, yeah. he was sued in court, yeah, and he said, "If I'd known that was going to happen afterwards, I'd actually think twice about doing the wow. story." Th- I think yeah. he says, "Death by a, th- a thousand, a thousand courts. courts." Yeah, that's yes. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. incredible think, stuff. And, yeah, yeah. Does it put you? Does it? Does it? Does it make you second guess your work, or do you approach it like you did when you first began? No, no, it makes you second guess. Oh wow! It re- well, I don't know about second guess, but. Now, every um, major story that I do, I have to run through my mind, excuse me, the likelihood of if I am sued, okay, who am I going to defend this story? And there are stories. There's one major story that I've been working on for about three years and um, we just cannot get it over the line because you these people say I won't I won't come to court. Mm. I can't, you cannot reveal my identity. Mm. So that does make you, you know, second guess, you know, some of these major stories. For instance, this Ben Robert Smith case would be costing both parties millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. And the appetite for media companies to have these kind of battles is very, very limited. Sure. You know, they don't want to do it. That's that's where I wanted to go with this. I mean, they don't want to go to court over your work, uh, but but your work involves meticulous, long form investigation. Does that play psychologically in the back of your head when you're uh, beginning beginning an investigation? Do you go, oh, they're not going to like me doing this one, but tough, tough or whatever? No, look, I, no, I have to say the Herald and the lawyers have always been incredibly supportive. Mm. You have to do your job and you have to give them enough reason, one, to trust you to do the story correctly and two, to have done the work to back it up. You know, you can't go off, you know, half-cocked on these stories. You need to um, you need to be able to prove what you're saying is true. Yeah, yeah. You can't just take a stab in the dark and hope that's going to get you there. It just doesn't cut the mustard. Yeah. Kate, what does the next um, 50 years, say, of journalism in Sydney, let's stick with Sydney, look like, do you think? 
Will you will you pass oh, off your legacy? What do you what do you I mean, will you will there be someone to take up the baton after you? Oh my goodness, of course, of course, of course. Like there are so many um, fantastic um, younger journalists in in print, on TV, in radio, and also there's so many ways now um, of you know getting long form stories across, like in a podcast, like what you're doing, for instance. There's a whole new way of reaching people, of you know, of telling stories. And I think that there'll always be, you know, people there happy to do the storytelling like you're doing. Mm. I just think, um, I think it's really healthy. There's always, and I a, think that there's, yeah, yeah. Say, there's always an appetite for storytelling no matter what market we're in. Exactly. And I think that, I think the major organisations are also realising the importance to their brand of investing time and energy in stories that, that do make a difference, that, you know, that, that cause a banking royal commission or, or, or shine a light into what's happening in aged care. Those kind of things, you know, really stand um, the major media organisations in good stead because it is really, really hard to do that as an individual person. An individual journalist doesn't have the resources. Like even for me, the cost of doing company searches, like they're not cheap, mm. but you need to do that to follow the money trail. Mm. Yeah. And I often think people don't understand how expensive um, some of these works are. So I do think that one, the major organisations realise the importance of putting money into these uh, kind of investigations and there's always sticky beaks like me coming along <laughs> you know wanting to know what is going on like it's really nothing more than being a sticky beak really <laughs> when it boils down to it. that's very eloquently put uh, look australia has such a, a fantastic history of of investigative journalists chris masters as you said um you sit among the echelons of that uh, uh, you must be pretty proud of your legacy so far Look, I don't actually sort of see it that way. And it's it's one of those things, It I know you're going to laugh at this, it doesn't matter how many stories you've done, it's so funny when someone just pinpricks you by saying, um, have you been on holidays? <laughs> nothing, ever, nothing ever upsets somebody more than when you've been working on a story and they think that you've either left the paper or you're not doing anything. Oh. Yeah. And there's always that anxiety of, um, you know, getting a story right, getting it up. But nothing, nothing beats the feeling of being on the trail of something good. I can't tell you, <laughs> can't tell you how good that is, is that, you know, when you're in the middle of the case. And I know that you were speaking to Michaela about working with other people. I love sometimes doing stories uh, you know, with other journalists. It's so nice to be able to say, guess what? Guess what I've just found? Or when they come running over to your desk and say, you are not going to believe this, Kate. And I just find that um, camaraderie of looking at some, you know, at, at some story with somebody else, it's just really, um, it's really good fun. Because often investigative journalism is the lone wolf. And it's nice to have a break from that sometimes. Absolutely. Kate McClymouth, thank you so much for spending uh, some time on Minimal Podcast today. I really appreciate it. And Jim, it's been a pleasure talking to you. 